it is always a very special pleasure and privilege when I can spend a few minutes talking to an outstanding and successful author such as Rebecca Searle. She is very, very well known for a number of wonderful books that she has already given the world in her uh, still relatively brief career, but incredibly successful career as an author, uh, responsible for, for books uh, like uh, When You Were Mine, The Edge of Falling, uh, The Dinner List. Uh, and uh, she is uh, now given the world uh, yet another novel, and this one called One Italian Summer. It is a very intriguing novel indeed, and at the heart of it is a woman who has just lost her beloved mother, and uh, their relationship was one that was extraordinarily, almost ferociously close and intense, and uh, and this woman named Katie is absolutely unmoored by this death, by the death of her beloved mother, Carol, and uh, in the wake of her death... Uh, Katie decides to embark on the trip to Italy that the two of them had been planning as a special mother-daughter adventure. Katie goes off to Italy alone and uh, there has an incredible experience that uh, uh, defies easy explanation. But at the heart again of all of this is the the question of, of who we are and how we are in a sense shaped and defined by those relationships that are most important to us, and especially when there is one relationship that is paramount above all others. Uh, that and more is found in the pages of this book, again called One Italian Summer, published by Atria. And Rebecca Searle, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much for having me. And can I just say what a beautiful and, and moving explanation of this novel. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Ah, well, I appreciate the compliment so much. Before we dig into the uh, novel more specifically, uh, I would love to know a little bit about your life as a writer and where that began for you. Uh, I mean, as a youngster even, were you already taking pen and paper and uh, beginning to... Uh, write in a in, in exceptional way, or was your love of writing that came a little bit later? Absolutely, you're spot on. It was right from the beginning. So my my father is a big reader. Um, still, probably reads about two books a week, just real consistent with it, and would read to me when I was younger, and then we would read together. And I I don't really have a memory before I self-identified as a writer before it was just, it was just who I am. Who are you? I'm my name's Rebecca and I'm a writer. Um, and I was entering writing competitions when I was in middle school and high school. And, um, I didn't, I remember at the time I didn't really know that real people publish books. I mean, I knew they existed. I knew that <laughs> I loved them, but I, I wasn't really sure how to go about that. You know, you don't, you don't, um, I don't know, you don't always think that it's maybe something you could do. And so I, I moved to New York and I was getting my master's at the new school in creative writing and I was working on a short story collection and I thought, okay, you know, I really, I love books and, and maybe I'll work in publishing and I'll just, I'll just be close to the process of making books and, and that will be good. And so I worked at Penguin, the publishing house for a little while and a literary agency as well. And I really enjoyed it. I loved the process of helping other people create their novels. I thought it was very fulfilling. Um, and then I got very lucky. I, I wrote my first book and sold it when I was quite young. I was about 24. And I've been writing full time ever since. So, so yes, it's always just been woven into the fabric of my life, really sort of 
um, intrinsic to who I am. I want to ask you about that leap in a sense. I mean, it probably didn't feel like a leap, and maybe it's wrong to characterize it as a leap, but that jump, that shift in terms of of being uh, a devoted reader to wanting Mm -hmm. to write. (laughs) Because, I mean, they're obviously very, very closely related, intertwined in your case, but they're also not the same thing. It's, it's, It's one thing to read a ton of books and love them. It's another thing to feel like you want to create books yourself. What was what 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 is wrapped up in that shift? And do you remember at the point the point in time where you had this hunger beyond just reading books to want to create them yourself? I remember it's a great question. And I and I, I think it was it was probably like a slow a slow unfolding. But I remember reading Wuthering Heights when I was pretty young. I was I was you know, I don't know, in grade school. And I just remember feeling like I want to make people feel the way I feel reading this. Like I can distinctly remember the feeling of feeling like this is what words can do. Oh my goodness. I want in on this. I want to be able, I want to be able to make people feel. And I think at the time I was probably already starting to play around. And I think as I really, honestly, like as I came to writing, I also, I want to say I was a very late reader. I didn't read until I was, I think like at the end of the second grade. Um, So, so for anyone out there who maybe struggled or whose children are struggling with reading, uh, it worked out okay for me. Um, But it took me a long time to sort of come, come to the page, both like both written and read. And once I did, I just, I, I just never remember stopping. I, I was constantly like fiddling around on pieces of paper and just figuring out like how you can organize words in a way to make someone feel something that was always so unbelievably compelling to me because I was so moved by what I read. Hmm. I love that. Great answer. Uh, One other question kind of related to all of this. I'm very intrigued by the work that you did just ahead of actually managing to become a published writer yourself. I mean, as you said, you your your entry into this world really had a lot to do with facilitating uh, the work of others. And, and then at some point, uh, you had to kind of, in a sense, turn around and say, and, 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 and now here's a book that I have. Uh, first of all, just on a kind of nuts and bolts level, how helpful was it to you to, in a sense, be inside this world, this publishing world, as part of it, before seeking to enter it through, in a sense, another door, I mean, with another role as as an author yourself? Extremely. I actually can't overstate how how important it was. Um, Both because, as you're saying, on on a nuts and bolts level, I really understood what publishing was and how it worked. You know, when I moved to New York, I didn't really know what an agent was. I didn't really know what a publisher was. I didn't really know the difference between a publisher and an editor. And so I was able to parse all of those pieces out and really understand how this industry worked. And it's still my, you know, advice to young writers is to get to know the industry you want to be a part of and, and how you see yourself fitting into that. I think it's so important to understand your business and publishing is a business. Um, so it was very helpful on that side. And then I think 
on just the writing front, understanding how books are built, the process that they go through, um, you know, what books are sold on, on proposal, meaning a few chapters that are, you know, packaged and sold to a publisher and, and how many rounds of edits they are and who you talk to about those edits. All those things were really helpful. And I also got a tremendous amount of satisfaction. Like at the time, I worked primarily on nonfiction projects. Okay, so it would be somebody who had, you know, a big platform. Maybe they um, had were like a diet coach or, you know, had some kind of fitness industry or something that they that they had created that was of tremendous value to people. But they're not writers by trade. That's not really what they do. And so I found a lot of satisfaction in taking somebody who had a really powerful message that they wanted to share but didn't necessarily have the words to do it and helping them find those words and, and put those words together in a way that would really impact the most amount of people. I thought it was really satisfying um, and a very different thing than, than what I do in fiction. So um, so it was enormous. And then on a, on a very practical level, I met my who, the woman who would become my first and, and future agent uh, through that process. So once I had a novel, I could submit to her um, because I knew her and had a relationship with her. So it was enormously helpful on a lot of different levels. Terrific. One other overarching question that I promise we'll get to, One Italian Summer, your new book. (laughs) You uh, are responsible for uh, something called Famous in Love, uh, which uh, was was a novel that was adapted then into uh, uh, a, a... a series for for television, which I've not yet encountered, but I'm really in, uh, intrigued by it and, and uh, plan to seek it out. I just wonder if you could say a word briefly about what it was like to step out of a world you knew so well on so many levels and and step into another world that I should think was, to some extent at least, unfamiliar and perhaps in some ways intimidating. And I also wonder kind of artistically as a writer uh, what the differences are between writing for the printed page versus writing for the screen. Yes, absolutely. I So I had a book series called Famous in Love. Um, it was about a girl who gets plucked from obscurity to star in, in a big feature film franchise and falls in love with her co-star. And it was, it was post-Twilight era. So all of that was really heavy in the air. Um, and I felt it would make a really fun teen show. You know, I grew up on WBTV, Gilmore Girls and, you know, Roswell and, and everything like that. And I, I was sort of my dream to, to be able to speak in that space. I got very lucky. Um, I had never worked in TV before. I wrote this pilot. Um, WME, my agency, ended up partnering me with, uh, with Marlene King, who created Pretty Little Liars, and we sold the show to Warner Brothers, and the next thing I knew, we were making the pilot, and then we were making season one. Uh, the experience was really extraordinary in every sense of that word. I had never been on a film set before, and all of a sudden, I was the creator of a television show, and also, it was extraordinarily challenging. I think it remains the most difficult chapter of my career for two reasons. One, because of what you're saying, it was a very intimidating world. It was very unfamiliar. And there is such a massive rhythm and hierarchy and um, just heartbeat to the way both a set and a writer's room work. And I was not familiar with with any of that. I just didn't know. Um, And then secondly, you know, which is which is related, a, a television show and the production of a television show is comprised of hundreds of people. And so I and used to writing stories alone in my office as one person. And then, you know, they get sent to my agent and they get sent to my editor and sure they weigh in. But ultimately everything you read in a novel of mine is something that I chose to put there. 
<laughs> that is not how TV works. And I really struggled um, to sort of to deal with um, the dialogue of that. I think on the one hand, it was really fulfilling because I'm, you know, I'm not familiar with having that much dialogue in my in my career. And that was nice. And on the other hand, it was really challenging because we were talking about a world that I felt proprietary over in some capacity and letting go of that was definitely a process. Um, I'm very happy to be on the other side of it now. And, you know, I'm, I continue to work in film and TV and I think that the, the, you know, as, um, as Cheryl Crow once famously said, the first cut is the deepest you get, you know, familiar with how, how things in film and TV work and you start to be less precious over your work. And all of that is a very positive and good thing. Um, but it was very, it was wonderful and it was very challenging. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today on the morning show with best-selling author Rebecca Searle, and uh, she is uh, responsible for a, a number of of important works, including uh, standalone novels "When You Were Mine," "The Edge of Falling," "The Dinner List," "In Five Years," and most recently a novel just published called "One Italian Summer." As I said in the introduction. The book is, at its heart, uh, in a sense, a love story uh, about uh, a a mother and daughter, and told from the viewpoint of a daughter who has just lost her mother, with whom she is so incredibly close. Uh, I read someplace that uh, at least part of the inspiration for this novel was from a trip that you took to Italy with your own mother. And indeed, the book, if I remember correctly, is dedicated to your mother, the queen of my heart, long may she reign. Tell us more about your own relationship with your own mother and what relationship there is between that relationship and the one in the book between Katie and her mother, Carol. Yeah. So, you know, much like Katie, um, my mother is my best friend and first phone call, and she's the person who I feel has all of the answers. I would hope and think that I'm maybe a little further along than Katie is when we meet her in my differentiation journey with her mother. Um, I do think, you know, part of growing up is understanding that no one knows the blueprint for our lives better than we do, not even our own mothers. Um, and I would like to think perhaps I'm a little farther along in that. But, um, I, you know, I call my mother multiple times a day. I, you know, I have like a funny scene and something and she's the person that I go to. I really, she has all of the answers. And, um, and I'm lucky that she is still here with me today. We, um, so in the summer of 2019, we took a trip to Italy together. My mother, similarly to Carol, had spent the summer in Italy, in Rome specifically, when she was 20 and fell in love with this guy named Remo and had this really magical summer. And she, I had always heard her talk about the summer and talk about this man named Ramo and how wonderful it was. And she had written him for years and she never really got a response and, you know, life moved on. Uh, I should caveat this by saying my mother's very happily married to my father, for real, and has been for many decades. But um, so we, we go back to Rome and we end up finding Ramo. We found his sister on Facebook and we organized... Um, for them to meet, for my mother and Ramo to meet at the Trevi Fountain, which was the place that they had originally met 50 years beforehand. Oh, my. At a bar that <laughs> now, at, yeah, at a bar that is now closed and has become a coffee shop. So um, 
so they meet and I'm there, you know, classic millennial that I am filming everything on my Instagram stories. And, um, and it was this really remarkable experience of everything from getting ready in the hotel room and my mother, you know, feeling kind of nervous and asking me like, does this skirt look okay? Like my, this is not who my mom is. She's like an extremely confident. It doesn't really act, like that's It's just not who she is to sitting there with him and seeing her kind of, you know, flirtatious and shy. And, and it was really so touching to me because I, I, I thought, who has this opportunity? Who gets to see the person inside of their mom? Who gets to know their mother as she was before you ever existed? And then I started thinking about what it would be like to spend time with that woman and perhaps to spend the summer with her. Hmm. Wonderful. And boy, that scene sounds like just something out of a out of a film script and your father your mother's husband was okay with this trip and and this ultimate destination okay so greg what's really funny about this is that this whole thing took place on my dad's birthday uh we happened to be in rome and we were taking this mother-daughter trip and it was my dad's birthday my father is just, I mean, he's a wonderful and incredibly supportive man. And I, I say in the acknowledgments of this book that he is very, I believe he is very proud of the union between my mom and I and what we share and very supportive of it. And he was sort of thrilled for her, to be honest. I mean, my parents have been married for such a long time. I think my father really knows where my mother's loyalty lies and, and is very confident in their love story. And so I think he was really excited for her to to get to relive a little chapter of her past, and and he was texting me. He wanted updates and photos, and the whole thing was very sweet. Hmm. As your novel One Italian Summer begins, uh, your main character Katie has just lost her mother, Carol, and I think you do such an amazing job of imagining and sharing with us then what it would be like for somebody who has this kind of relationship with their mother, uh, what that would feel like for that very, very important person to suddenly be gone. Uh, And I wonder, because you are someone who still has your mother and your father, uh, in a sense, what kind of leap of imagination were we talking about for you to Put yourself in the shoes of your main character experiencing a loss that I assume you have not yet experienced in your life. Not that you haven't had losses, maybe lots of them, but not a loss of the magnitude that Katie has experienced in your novel. Mm. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think part of my job as a novelist is to tap into the shared universal experience of what grief and love are and to reflect it. Um, and, you know, Andrew Garfield recently was on Jimmy Fallon or somewhere, and he was talking about the death of his very beloved mother, and he said, grief is just unexpressed love. And I thought that was so beautiful and so true. Um, I am really familiar with what that love feels like, and it's not difficult for me to to imagine and begin to unpack what that grief would feel like. Um, And and not for nothing, I, I spend not an insignificant amount of time thinking and contemplating what that will be like, because it is my greatest fear in this life. And I've been talking about this book a lot over the last few weeks. And one thing I keep coming back to is that I think in a lot of ways, this book is a little bit of a love letter to my future self, the one who will have to be here without her someday, if we're lucky, right? Because we would never wish the alternative on our parents that we go first. Um, 
it's the way life goes. And even those of us who are so unbelievably close, we at some point all become motherless daughters. And I will say I had a very significant year when I was 23 where three of my best friends lost their mothers to cancer in the span of eight months. It happened very fast. Wow. And one my um, one of my really dear friends said to me right after her mother passed was, um, I miss all of the all of the women that I didn't know. I miss her at 80 and I miss her at 15 and I miss her at 10. I like miss all of the people, not just the one that I knew as my mother. And it really stayed with me so strongly and impacted me over the course of the next, you know, 10, 12 years. I thought about that so much. And so then when I was in Italy with my mom and I was watching her and I was feeling like, oh, I'm seeing her. I'm seeing the person inside of her. I'm getting to meet that person um, and I'm getting to share a little bit of time with her. And um, I, I don't know, that always that sentiment just always stayed with me. And so I think that, you know, I'll say again, I really do think that part of a novel's job is to just is to tap in to those universal emotions and find the best words we can to describe them in a way that people who have experienced it or people who have a fear of experience, it can say like, yeah, yeah, can recognize it. Um, and that is, you know, whether we have personally yet experienced that specific situation or not. Hmm. It's just the job. Right. Your job as the novelist. Yeah. One of the things you do to help us understand, in a sense, fairly quickly who Carol was, that is Katie's mother, is that you you share with us very, very early in the book a list of, I forget what they're called now, rules to live by or something, but it's this That's kind right. of bullet point list of, of kind of everyday rules uh, on, you know, kind of how, how, to, how to live well and how to, to get along. And it's, you know, kind of an intriguing list. I, I won't read them all, but it's things like plant herbs, not flowers. OxyClean will take out any stain. Uh, never smoke. And my favorite on the list, always arrive on time to a restaurant and five minutes late to someone's house. Um, <laughs> and there are a few others on that list as well. I'd love to have you... Uh, talk about kind of putting this list together and, and what you think this list represents to the reader or what you wanted it to represent to the reader. By the way, I stand by most of those points. For all, for all the listeners out there, OxyClean is great. That's something I have gotten from my mother. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, when the book opens, we meet, we meet Katie, and Katie is somebody who really doesn't feel that she has a lot of agency over her own life. She really feels that her life is a product of the choices that her mother has made for her, and she is deeply committed to the rules that her mother lives by because they're like a lifeline for her. So when we open that book and we get this list of rules, it's sort of the only thing that she feels is tethering her to her life anymore. It's like, okay, okay, at least I know this. At least I know how to move through life in this very specific, like, tactile, tangible way. At least she left me these, these, like, these rules, these guidelines. Um, and, of course, part of Katie's journey is to understand that, um, that her rules and her guidelines may be very different than her mother's, right? And that's part of growing up is that we – we begin to embrace what's right for us, not just the rules um, that we've inherited. But, um, but I think that when the book opens, she's clinging to whatever last bit from her mother she can, and she also idolizes her in this really significant way. Katie doesn't feel that she has any answers, and she feels like Carol has them all. Um, and it's important for her to share with us 
what her mother's rules are because it's the best way she can share with us right off the bat who her mother was mm. and who her mother was to her. Right. At one point, Katie is thinking to herself, she, meaning her mother, she had all the answers. I, on the other hand, have none of them. And now yeah. I no longer have her. Um, this relationship between Katie and Carol brought a couple of real-life experiences of my own uh, to mind. And one of them is the really sudden death of my own mother. This is a long time ago, now 1988. And she was just 58 years old and died very, very suddenly. And it was, I mean, in a sense, uh, for a death, that you could not have wished anything better for her except how untimely her death was. But, I mean, no suffering, no fear, just gone in an instant. Um, and one of the things I remember experiencing in the wake of her unexpected death was how for the rest of us, that is my father and my three siblings, it was so difficult for us to connect with one another because she had been like the center of the wheel <laughs> and we were the spokes, but she was the one who kind of helped us be in touch with each other. And it was really through her that I knew what my siblings were doing and and just kind of all together, she she was the heart of the network. And I never ever stopped even realize that while she was here and when she was gone, it was suddenly so evident what her function was in our family and how we had to, in a sense, build new bridges because mm. she was gone. And that seems to have really been the experience of Katie in that at one point when she uh, says something to the effect that we are missing our center, that is this family, uh, we are missing our center. Uh, I suspect, although you've maybe not directly experienced that in your life, clearly you've had friends and others where suddenly you realize that somebody is the center and you didn't know that until they're gone. Yes. First of all, I'm so sorry for your loss, and thank you for sharing that with us. Um, yeah, I mean, Katie is, you know, Katie is a young wife, and she's also a daughter of her father. And um, and once her mom is gone, she really isn't certain what her role is, even in those relationships, right? Like, even in her own marriage, which, you know, by all accounts, should function separately from her inherited family, from her mother, but it doesn't, because... Her mom was the center even of her own marriage. Um, and so Katie really needs to learn, you know, both how to come home to herself and how to trust herself and the fact that she does have more answers, as we've been discussing, than she thought she did, but also how to have the relationships in her life, how to make them fulfilling without her mom. Um, and, and then, in fact, you know, I think also part of her journey is she in, in some ways believes that her you know, as I said, like her marriage is also a product of her mother's choices for her, that her mother sort of chose this for her. But actually, when she sits down and, and remarries it, she realizes that this is something that she chose for herself. And there's real power in that. You know, I really also believe that so much of our life is how we narrate it, what we choose to give meaning, the chapters we choose to give meaning, the sentiment we choose to give meaning. Um, and I think part of Katie's journey over the course of One Italian Summer is to, is to re-narrate her life and to put herself at the center of it, actually, to replace her mother with herself. Hmm. Another moment in, uh, early in the book that just leapt out at me was... Uh, 
when Katie is thinking about her mother and her considerable abilities, which had such impact on so many people in her life. Uh, mm. that, and, and at one point, the way Katie describes it is, Carol knew how to show up. I mean, she, was, mm. she had so many answers and knew how to be helpful and, and just made such a difference. Carol knew how to show up, and now here I am uh, hiding in her closet in her absence. I mean, very much incapable of being the kind of person who, who shows up. I'm reminded of a, of a young person in my life. Uh, I don't want to say too much more to identify him, but uh, somebody who lost an incredibly beloved grandfather and in the wake mm. of it experienced this crippling sorrow that left him essentially kind of curled up in his bed, unable to show up for school or anything else. And I remember uh, in a conversation with him, trying to communicate with him that this is the last thing your grandfather would want is for you to, you know, give into your grief in this way that you're, in a sense, not living anymore. I mean, it would be the last thing that that grandfather would want for his grandson. And in a sense, uh, I, I remember thinking that, I mean, if Carol would look down on Katie, it would be the last thing she would want is for her daughter to be curled up in a closet, afraid of the world and afraid to go on. It's so interesting to think about a relationship that, without ever intending it, where you would, in in a sense, leave the other in that fragile state. Uh, I wonder how much you thought about that when you kind of thought about this aspect of the story and of this loss. It's so significant, you know, and I think we lose these people. I mean, my grandmother was very much that way uh, for my mother and, and myself, my grandmother, Sylvia, who my, my novel, two novels ago, The Dinner List, is dedicated to her and my grandfather. Um, but, I, you know, I think that it, it's so tricky because I think that part of, part of Katie's grief, I'll speak for her, is that she knows and feels that she will never be able to live up to who her mother was right? In her own family, in her community. Um, And the truth is that she doesn't have to. She doesn't have to be Carol. And I think that we make mistakes with our parents. And by the way, everyone that we sort of look up to and idolize in this life, when we think that we have to do it just like they do it in order for it to be meaningful, in order for it to impact the people around us, it's simply not true. And I think that because Katie was so enamored of her mother, because she loved her so deeply, because she saw how significant Carol was to everyone around her, she feels that the only way to be a contribution is to be like her, and she can't. It's not Mm. her life path. But actually connecting to what is right for us, to what our own life paths are, to what we specifically as individuals have to contribute, that is our best way to show up for the people around us, not by trying to be somebody else. Mm. Well put. We're speaking with Rebecca Searle, best-selling author, whose latest book is a marvelous novel called One Italian Summer. Uh, At the heart of it is a young woman named Katie who has lost her beloved mother, Carol. And in the wake of of her mother's death, Katie decides to embark on the trip that they had planned to do together, a trip to Italy and to a very special community there that had meant a lot to Katie's mother, Carol. Um, before we talk a little bit about it, Italy, I want to circle back to one other moment that is so striking uh, in this early portion of the book 
when Katie is still trying to come to grips with this uh, uh, wrenching sorrow, Katie at one point is thinking to herself, I am overcome with how little I have left, how second best every single other thing is. In other words, she sort of feels like she lost uh, the best part of her life when her mother died. And it's so interesting to think about what feeling that, and even to some extent outwardly expressing that, what that means for the people who are still there, like Katie's husband, <laughs> like Katie's father. <laughs> I mean, for in yeah. a sense, for them to be those, the, the sort of part of the second bestness of, of Katie's life now that her mother is, is gone. Uh, I wonder how much you think about, you know, the, the people around Katie and what this had to mean and also what it sort of means for the reader, for us to see this side of Katie who is viewing those around her, including those, those closest to her, seeing them in this way. It's, uh, She is only when we meet her, she is only in relationship with her mother and she's only a reflection of her mother. And so now that her mother is gone, of course, everything is second best. And, you know, that's not to minimize it. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what it will be like when my mom's not here and how I will wish forever, you know, until I'm gone that I could have her with me always. We still talk about this. I'm like, just stay forever, you know, stay as long as I'm here. I just, it even makes me cry talking about it. Um, but that's not how life works. And so I think that she, Katie is not someone who really, as we've been discussing, knows how to hold her own center. She, she just, she just is sort of showing up and mirroring where her mother is at. And part of her journey in this book, um, you know, this book ultimately also is really a book about coming back to life, um, which is something that I hope we are all doing in, in some way. And, and I can talk about the, sort of the era of the last two years of, of when I wrote this book, but it is really a book about, about coming back to life in a way. And, mm-hmm. It is a book about returning, and it's a book about Katie returning to herself. So I think that once she moves sort of the hospital of her life off of her mother and more to her own center, she's then able to see her relationships for what they really are. And the truth is, all of the relationships are second best because, I'm sorry, this sounds very corny, but it's very true. (laughs) Ultimately, the first best and the most important relationship Relationship is the one that she's going to have with herself and everything after that is going to come second. Mm. But when we meet her, she doesn't know that yet. Right. I appreciate the fact that you made what strikes me as something of a bold choice in shaping the character of Katie in a way that uh, I could imagine at least some readers finding unlikable. That is, you don't seem to be afraid of making the protagonist of your book, particularly at the outset, somebody who that we maybe don't necessarily like uh, or, or don't, don't admire in the way that I think a lot of authors like to take their protagonist and put them on a pedestal, even if they you know, attach to them a few flaws. But you know, at the center, we want them to be somebody with whom we easily relate and, and in a sense, easily like. And while we certainly, I mean, feel profound sympathy for Katie, it's also, in a sense easy to dislike her in a sense 
because of 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 who she is and 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 this relationship in her life that is suddenly in a sense gone um did you think very much about that as you shaped the novel and in particular as you shaped this character you know what i honestly really don't i mean i i don't i don't know if if any of my narrators are particularly likable at the beginning of my book i'm thinking about sabrina and the dinner list and and certainly danny and in five years um which before One Italian Summer was my most widely read novel. Um, Danny, when we meet her, is is really intense um, and sort of will bite your head off if you come in conflict with her and is not a particularly likable character. Um, I write the truth of where people are. And the truth of where people are is not always pretty. It often isn't. Um, I, it rarely is. Um but I think that's what makes interesting stories. And ultimately what I'm interested in is showing a growth trajectory is moving someone from point A to, you know, I guess generously point, let's call it Y. Um, And, you know, and showing the ways in which we can, we can continue to grow and learn and change our lives, you know, even sometimes later in the game. So I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about whether I don't really spend any time to be honest, thinking about whether, these characters are likable or not. I think I'm more just, yeah, I rate the truth of where they are and, and what's going on for them and, and sort of may the chips fall where they may. <laughs> I said that wrong, but you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's a great choice. And, and your tremendous success as an author is, I think, a testament to, uh, to the validity of that, of, that, uh, of that approach, of that choice. So ultimately, of course, Katie heads off to Italy. The, the tickets are are already purchased for this trip that she and her mother had hoped to to take. And so she takes herself to the nation of, of Italy and, in a sense, immerses herself in the timelessness of Italy. I don't remember if I read that turn of phrase in the book itself or, or in a review of the book, but, but I, I think that is just right on point. I mean, you could have had them go to, for instance, Maui, where you grew up, or any other number of beautiful, exotic locales. But I suspect you very deliberately chose Italy, and not just because of the trip you made there with your own mother. Tell us why you think Italy was such a perfect backdrop for the balance of the novel. Well, there's this real significant dialogue, I think, in the book between the momentary intensity of what Katie is experiencing and also as you're, you know, so eloquently putting the, the timelessness of, of, of human life. And so I think that Italy is a place that just brings those, those two things into such stark contrast. You know, the, the book is also really a book about pleasure. It's a book about food and wine and sea and salt air. And, and just, you know, you could spend, which I don't, um, I'm, I'm quite a brief writer. I will say that the book is not tremendously long, but, you would spend a chapter just talking about how delicious the tomatoes are there. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's a real immediacy to life in Italy. Um, and and just how long the days are and how much you can sort of meander through and, and, and how you can enjoy a glass of wine for two and a half hours. There's just there's so many just drenched moments in that place that I really wanted to represent. And on the other hand, you have this place that's existed for thousands and thousands of years that seen so much of humanity you know i think that in our modern culture it's not a stretch to say we are very uh moment obsessed we are obsessed with what is currently happening right now whether it's 
you know, tragedies that are going on in the world, our own experience, what's happening on the internet. Like we are so unbelievably immersed in this moment. And there is something really powerful that happens when you step out of it, when you understand that civilizations have risen and fallen, um, that, you know, generations have returned to this place. I mean, I, I drew a tremendous amount of comfort when I was there in seeing like the places my mother talked about in Positano still existed, right? Like the same restaurants, the same shops are still making those lemon printed dresses. There is such a timelessness to that place. And I think that it allows us all a little bit of an exhale when we think about the way that place endures. Mm. I love the way you said that. Um, the character of Katie uh, encounters a number of people in Positano, but in particular, a young woman who, in a sense, allows Katie to reconnect with her mother, Carol, and, and to somehow connect with her in, in a way that we don't even fully understand, but is utterly engrossing. And it is also there in Positano that Katie meets uh, uh, a handsome stranger named Adam, and uh, and embarks on on, a, on an exciting uh, and illuminating journey with with him. Uh, most novels, quite a few novels, have the handsome stranger. Uh, what did you think about in terms of shaping that particular character and and uh, Katie's encounter with him uh, in order to make it, in a sense, feel both familiar and yet not a retread of what we've encountered so many times before? In novels before this? Well, my books are never predominantly, like the primary relationship in my books is never a romantic relationship, or at least historically they haven't been. In Five Years was about a love story between uh, two best friends. One Italian Summer is, is obviously, as we're discussing, a love story between a mother and a daughter. But they all have romance, and you can't go to Italy and not have romance. Um, you need romance, and, and I love reading about romance, and I love writing about romance, so I knew I wanted that in there. Adam is a character who, um, very, very contrary to Katie, does not define himself in relationship to anyone else. He is a character who has is fully embodied just in this moment, just in who he is, and he's really interesting and very compelling to Katie, uh, for this very reason, because he is not someone who sees himself necessarily as part of a community, as, um, you know, a half of a relationship. He is um, his own, what do we say, like his own solo planet. And and obviously Katie is somebody who has been living on somebody else's planet for her 30 years. So that in and of itself is really a very interesting draw to Katie she encounters him and it's like, this is a person who is so, um, so present in who they are and so present in the moment that they are in. This is interesting. What's happening here. Mm, I like that. And yes, it's, it's as though he is shaped, uh, to be an intriguing contrast to Katie, to who she is, to who she, how she is put together to the way she has always seen herself in the world around her. And, uh, and yes, Adam is is a intriguing, stark contrast to that, and that's part of what makes that character work so very, very well. And of course, you do an amazing job of painting this incredibly vivid portrait of this community in Italy, and we can practically smell and taste and see uh, everything that Katie is experiencing in this uh, amazing encounter. I do want to touch on something that you mentioned briefly 
the fact that you crafted this novel, One Italian Summer, during uh, COVID. Uh, describe just a little bit about uh, that experience and how much it differed from the experience of writing your previous novels. So I published In Five Years on March 10th of 2020. I was in New York. Um, I was at Good Morning America the morning of March 10th, and the, we, it was during that elbow bump phase of COVID, as everyone will recall, where we were like, we're just going to touch each other's elbows, and this is going to be fine. Um, and I was meant to embark on a 12 or 14 city, a very large book tour. And I made it to my second stop, which was Boston. And um, I, I had to fly home. They were sending, you know, all college kids had to be out by Sunday. I came back and the world shut down literally the next day. It, uh, everything, you know, as we all know very well, happened so fast. And so I was, I was not able to really promote and talk about that book in the same way because it was such early days. We didn't even really have Zoom. We, didn't, we weren't set up, or at least publishing, I will say, was not set up for this. And it took a while to kind of find our sea legs. And so um, I had this, this, this real lapse of time. And, and as the week started to turn on, I found myself really desperate to return to the page. Um, it is the place that gives me meaning, that makes me feel calm, that, you know, all of those things. I, I really love writing so much. And and I knew that this was a story I, I had wanted to tell. I didn't think I would tell it right then. And so it was early April, and I, I sat down to write it. And I really wanted, you know, it, it was during those first very, very hazy days of COVID where we weren't really sure are we ever going to be able to travel again. And I think that I was really contending with in early April, are we ever going to be able to go to Italy again? Am I even going to see my parents like for years? I mean, I just, nobody knew anything. It all felt so strange and out of control. And I really wanted to be anywhere besides the four walls of my house. And so, you know, one thing I will say um, is that one Italian summer really felt to me like a vacation to write. I mean, I would put on a fun playlist every morning and I would just plant myself in, in Italy. And I know that international travel is not available to all of us for a multitude of reasons. And so it's really my sincerest hope that this book feels like a vacation to read and that it transports people and that it, it gives you, um, it gives you that, that lift and that break. Cause it was very much written in that spirit. Hmm. The book, again, is One Italian Summer. It is the latest novel from best-selling author Rebecca Searle. The book is published by Atria. Rebecca Searle, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It was a real delight to speak with you about uh, this book and about your very, very successful career. Best wishes to you as you go on from here to, I hope, bring the world still more books. Thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. I can't wait to chat again.